The apocalypse is here. There's too much to listen to and not enough time. Put it on double speed. Listen all the time. See if you can catch up. Don't fall behind. Hey, it's Ben Skoda, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. Happy 2019. If you're like most people, including me, your New Year's resolutions are probably already out the window. Resolutions are weak. They don't work very well. They fall short of becoming habits. So this is a podcast, one that I hope you will listen to on regular speed, about habits. In fact, a particular habit. The habit of listening to this podcast. Not every episode of Akimbo, just this episode of Akimbo. Listening to it four times, or eight times, or 12 times. I'm paying it forward. Zig Ziglar did this for me in 1986. Something special happens if you find the right thing to listen to and listen to it again and again. Steve Pressfield did it for me. Pema Chodron did it for me. Maybe you already found someone who's worth listening to more than once. So that's my goal. Happy 2019. Here are some readings from my book, What to Do When It's Your Turn. And it's always your turn. The universe does not seek revenge on those who choose. What happens when the plane is oversold? It doesn't happen nearly as often as it used to because it so completely freaks out the anxious traveler. There are 150 seats and 160 people eager to fly. The lucky 150 are settling in, finally on board, bags stowed, seats about to be reclined. The harried gate agent comes on the microphone and announces that for anyone willing to take a flight two hours later, she's willing to pay for the ticket $500, plus throw in another $300 in compensation. The math is pretty compelling, no? That's $400 an hour. How many people on this flight make $400 an hour? No one raises a hand. No one volunteers. Right now, they have certainty. Getting off the plane, on the other hand, is inviting retribution. It feels greedy. Why trade away certainty? Certainty that's so incredibly difficult to find. People who are open to uncertainty are the pathfinders for the rest of us. They are the ones who walk on the moon, who start important nonprofits, who paint paintings worth falling in love with. We stare at them with admiration and shower them with opportunities and gratitude. Not because they take big risks, but because they are willing to live with not knowing. Where do you put the tired? Everyone who runs the marathon gets tired. Yet there are no books called How to Run Without Getting Tired. That's because you can't. And everyone who takes their turn gets scared. So why is everyone always talking about how to do important work, give talks, make a ruckus, without the fear? Of course you're going to be afraid. The thing is, to finish the marathon, 
all you need to do is find a place to put the tired. Not avoid it, merely put it someplace. And the same thing is true for the important work we need to do. Where do you put the fear? Working the hallway. There is a moment in between the time it's good enough and the time you ship. This is the hallway as you walk from the dressing room to the stage. This is the penultimate meeting, the check-in before you go for final approval. In this moment, when we're in the hallway, we're desperate for resolution, desperate for the reassurance that will come from a smile in the audience or a nod from our boss. It's like we've left one trapeze and we're flying in the air for the other one, for solidity, for safety. All our focus is on nailing the landing, getting this midair thing over with. Not so fast. Fly. This is the moment to plus it, to add a little extra, or to refine. The moment to push a little harder, to simplify, to create elegance. This is our chance, now that we've paid all these dues, to become a magician, the one who's brave enough to say, one more thing. It's so much easier to start closing down, protecting ourselves, to put a little distance between who we are and what we made. There are so many places to hide. By the time we finish walking the hallway, the work already isn't ours. We're safe. I'm not proposing you stall or delay. The deadline doesn't change. All that changes is your connection to the work, your willingness to use this moment to put your full self into the most generous, vulnerable work you're capable of creating. Are you working to connect the dots or are you merely collecting dots? No place to hide. Sometimes we need to find ourselves with no place to hide. I made this. It's my fault. It was my idea. I decided to do it. How often do we bend over backwards to avoid uttering these words? How often Are we unwilling to face the void, squirming under the gaze of an authority figure as we fight for our lives, hoping that we won't get blamed? No place to hide is the only place to be. If it matters, we have to remove every single cubbyhole, every nook and cranny where we can escape. It's only when we are this naked that we're able to fully take our turn and to understand what it is to make something. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing this naked, this alone, this responsibly. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing it this naked, this alone, this responsibly. I know you don't want to do this. None of us do at first. We've been trained to avoid this at all costs. I get that but now it's become a crutch and a drag on what you're capable of. Go. Get naked. It's all invented, but that doesn't mean it isn't real. A friend grew up with a severe phobia. He told me that one of the most hurtful things adults said to him, they meant well, no doubt, was, it's all in your head. 
Just because it's in your head doesn't mean you're not sick, in pain, unable to breathe. The paralyzing fear we feel in the face of freedom is in our head. That's the only place it could be. It's something we invented just as we invent all of the drama in our lives, all of the attractions, connections, and meaning that we depend on. Ben and Roz Zander talk about the game we play in creating a narrative of our lives. We invent our expectations, our rules, our standards. We invent what we hope will happen, what needs to happen, what has to happen. Most of all, we invent the constraints that prevent us from seeking freedom. We invent them. If these inventions aren't working, if they're making us sick or unhappy or ineffective, the question on the table is, why not invent something else? Why not invent different rules, different expectations, different ways of deciding what success is and what it's not? Here's how I know that there's no correct set of inventions. We each have a different list. Each of us has different expectations, a different definition of fairness, and a different set of goals. And my set, and probably your set, is not the same as it was a month or a year or a decade ago. It changes. If each of us has a unique invented worldview, and that worldview keeps changing, why not change it on purpose? Why not invent a way of being that's actually eager, not just comfortable, but eager to live with the duality of work, not work, to embrace the freedom of living in a world where we're not controlling every outcome and not even sure about what's going to happen next. Creative, dynamic, and happy people have invented a monologue built around taking the work seriously, but not personally, and in accepting that it will all be okay. Because after all, what's the alternative? That story that keeps replaying, your story, that story that keeps replaying the interaction of your expectations and what happens, the narrative, the disappointments, and the way you process it, it's all invented. Ambien, the popular sleep aid, doesn't really help people sleep much more. In one study, it boosted sleep by 18 minutes a night. No, the reason it works is that it's an amnesiac. Ambien makes you forget that you didn't get a good night's sleep. Because a huge side effect of sleeplessness is the invented story we tell ourselves about how tired we are. Ambien doesn't help us sleep. It just destroys the negative story about not sleeping. It's all invented. It's still real. The pain is real. The frustration is real. But the story that's causing it is something we made up and something we can change. The pain is real. And so is the path to changing it. On living in two futures at once. Every time you take your turn, you're seeking to make a change happen, and there's no guarantee that it will, which means there is a fork in the road. This might work, 
this might not work. And beyond the fear of failure is the tension of living in two different futures. In order to engage with our ideas, to flesh out our approach, we start envisioning how it will work and what it will feel like. We begin to live inside that future. A future that might not happen. It will all be okay. This oft-repeated phrase might mean everything will turn out the way you want it to, but it doesn't. It never turns out that way. It actually means something will happen. And whatever happens, you can figure out what to do with that. Because by defining what happens as okay, we open the door to accepting our work and our world and our quest to make things better. Bravery and courage are for other people. It's entirely possible that you are physically able to be a thoroughbred's jockey or lead a battalion into battle or work the night shift as a cop. These are risky and difficult jobs, and they require bravery. And it's more than likely that there are tasks you're avoiding doing because they require significant emotional labor and the ability to overcome perceived risk. They're not physically dangerous, but they require courage nonetheless. It's easy to use words like bravery and courage because they pigeonhole the work. It is work for the brave and the courageous, not for us. By labeling yourself as not quite brave or almost but not yet courageous, you let yourself off the hook. It's a label, and it's a label for other people, people who are in a better place than you are, apparently. Brave and courageous are labels, and they are labels for other people, people who are in a better place than you are, apparently. Getting off the broken escalator requires neither bravery nor courage. It's not risky. It merely appears to be risky. I'm not asking you to be a brave person or a courageous person. I'm not pushing you to become some sort of creative genius when you believe you're actually not. No, the opportunity lies in merely seeing what's actually happening. False perceptions leading to a cycle of fear that's baseless. You don't need a permit or a blessing or any sort of permission to decide to take your turn. You only have to open your eyes and look, and then choose. When I say to people, make a ruckus, what I'm saying is that we each have the chance to see the world as it is, and to choose the path that enables us to make a contribution. To connect dots instead of collect them. To make an assertion, to raise our hand, to contribute to show up and make things better. So yeah, go make a ruckus. Thanks for listening. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Steven out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... 
And that completes my question. If you haven't asked a question yet, now's a great time to start. Visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. It doesn't work from an iPhone, I've discovered, so you'll need to do it from your laptop, your desktop, your Android phone, but we'd love to hear from you. We got some great questions this week. I'm going to answer two of them. A third one from Stuart will save and turn into an entire episode upcoming. So here we go. Hey, Seth. It's Brownrig here from Niceville, Florida. Uh, your latest episode on the new player and your, your business experiment was intriguing to me. Very fascinating. I found that I've done the same thing many times in terms of looking for what you said was the quick way in or the shortcut. And with your, with your hope to change culture and um, create something new and fresh for these people, um, why did you essentially choose the shortcut in versus trying to do the long run? You said that you didn't have the patience to do that. Was it the dip that made you decide not to continue with wanting to change the culture in that way? Or was it just not going to be financially viable or fun? Um, to continue going over the long term. Appreciate it so much. You're right. Zoomtone Records did not work as a commercial venture, and it's probable that there was a dip. Might have been a dead end. We'll never know. But I don't think I was taking a shortcut. I think I was taking the most direct path. But what I discovered was that the people I sought to serve the 100,000 people who read Stereophile magazine, the 50,000 people who already had an SACD player and who were facing a shortage of music that matched the kind of music they wanted to hear, it turned out that those people didn't yet want what I wanted to make them, which was music for listeners instead of listeners for music. That what I was trying to model was a subscription service where I got the chance to commission music for people who wanted to hear it. The opportunity in the market wasn't that you could start a record label. There wasn't a shortage of record labels. The opportunity in the market was a new business model was possible. This is the path that Netflix went on. They started by saying, oh, we can use the postal service to replace the rent we would have to pay Blockbuster. But now, now that they've hit critical mass, they say, we can use subscription fees from our members to make shows for them. That wasn't possible 25 or 30 years ago. So my test demonstrated to me that there was a desire among a small group of people to transact remotely to buy music, not to go to the music store or the record store. But what I also learned, a key piece of data is that the group was going to need a lot more generous persistence to change what they wanted. So one of the things that we teach in the book, This is Marketing, and in the marketing seminar is this. It is way, way easier to give the market what it thinks it wants than it is to communicate to the market that it wants something it doesn't know about yet. And so to make something like the iPhone which is the single most successful consumer product in history, Apple had to persuade people that they wanted an iPhone. 
That's really different than showing up in front of vegans with oat milk because vegans already know that they want something that tastes a little like milk that isn't milk. So you say to someone, are you looking for something like this? And if they say yes, you're done. So the challenge that I had, it wasn't a mistake, but it was a challenge is, was I prepared to strap in and spend the time and the money to go on the long, possibly fruitless journey necessary to change people from people who didn't want what I wanted to make into people who did? And I was honest enough with myself and my musicians that the answer was no. I didn't want to be in that industry for that long with those odds. And that's why we didn't pursue it. Hi, Seth. This is Tina from Raleigh, North Carolina. A question I've been struggling with my whole life is how to make a living serving the less wealthy, not the top 1%. Is there a model other than making the expensive collectible for a wealthy few, the smallest viable audience, as a way to survive? Thank you. This is a really juicy question because it opens up all sorts of conversations, some of which we can have now and some of which we'll have to postpone. The first one is this. There is a difference between price and value. There are lots of people who aren't wealthy who buy things that cost a bunch of money, but they insist that those things be an excellent value, that they give them a high yield on the money that they spend. So somebody who's buying a bass fishing boat for ten dollars or $20,000 doesn't have a million dollars in the bank. They might even be going into debt to buy it, but they're buying it because to them, it's worth $100,000. It gives them value for what is charged. So one of the things I've been working hard to teach people on is this. Instead of relentlessly lowering your price, focus really hard on increasing the value that you create. Because it is way easier to build something that matters, to build something with value, than it is to squeak by as the cheapest. Very, very few people say, I bought this, I love it, it's amazing, but it costs too much. But plenty of people say, this was cheap, but it doesn't matter because it's lousy. You don't want to be catering to that second group. But the other half of your question gets to the heart of the economics of how do we serve people who don't have unlimited amounts of money to spend? Because the story a wealthy person might be telling themselves, not all wealthy people, not all the time, is I like spending extra because spending extra reminds me that I'm wealthy. Well, that's a convenient, helpful thing for an entrepreneur who's getting started to be able to sell into if you can make the story true. But it's way more significant in terms of the breadth of your impact to be able to reach people who are buying things for a different reason. So let's consider the case of Danny Meyer and uh, his company, Union Square Hospitality Group, that owns the Union Square Cafe, the Modern, and a bunch of other very fancy restaurants in New York City. It turns out he also founded Shake Shack. No one would say that Shake Shack is only for wealthy Americans. Plenty of people are eating in Shake Shack every day who are making just barely above the minimum wage. And what is he offering them? The cheapest way to get 600 calories? No, of course not. What he's offering them is value. That it costs more than going 
to a lousy fast food place, but they believe the consumer who chooses to go there believes it's worth it. And so in order to make the business work, you need volume. Shake Shack probably sells as many meals during lunch today as all of Danny's restaurants put together will sell in a month. Well, the reason is obvious. Because when you're selling a $6 hamburger, you got to sell a lot of them to make enough money to pay the rent. So if you want to serve people who aren't going to spend a lot of money with you, you need more of them. Now, this is challenging if you're a coach. Because if you're a coach, you can only have 30 clients a week. That's a lot. So if you've got 30 clients a week, you can't make it up in volume. So what are the alternatives? Well, the alternatives are you don't do one-on-one coaching. Instead, you organize mastermind groups of five or 10 people, and you sit in with them once or twice a month. Suddenly, instead of having 30 customers, you could quite easily have 300 customers. And when you have 300 customers, you can sell them a high-value product or service for way less than you would need to charge the 30. So, I think we must begin with this. You can't go to market saying, I'm going to build a company that sells things to stupid people, to people with bad taste or judgment about value. I'm only going to sell to idiots with an enormous amount of money who are trying to overspend. Because pretty soon, you're going to run out of rubes to sell to. That the real opportunity is to say, I seek to create value. So much value that if my potential customer knew what I know, they would still buy from me. That is a good path to go on. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.